Creative Brookline is a monthly podcast interviewing individual interdisciplinary artists and arts organizations, covering arts events and festivals, and all aspects of creativity and creators in Brookline, Massachusetts. This podcast pilot was developed by Brookline's Community Media Arts Center, Brookline Interactive Group, with additional funding from the Brookline Commission for the Arts. During today's show, I'm fortunate enough to be able to sit down with the Artistic Director of Puppet Showplace Theater in Brookline, and that is Roxana Myram. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kathy. I'm really happy to be here. So we've talked a little bit about the Puppet Showplace Theater in the past, but I'm so excited to have you on our very first inaugural show of our Arts in Brookline podcast. I want to actually start with some silliness. So tell I'm me. ready. I am. I take silliness very seriously. Very seriously. Kathy, very that seriously. is my job. That is my mission. My calling in life. So bring it on. I want to know what your favorite character is, puppets or otherwise. I realized that even though I am a very serious person and I like to think a lot about the impact of art and society and all of this meaningful stuff, that really my character that I was born to play is a seven-year-old boy. I was a puppet character of The Little Prince, and, and he was also played by several other really great female puppeteers. And he had some really intense, dramatic scenes when he was talking back to the pilot, and he would say, like, you could be an artist instead of a... And he was like, it was going to say instead of a grown-up, right? Mm. So lots of fun things to deliver, but he would also talk about, on my planet, every day I get up and water the baobabs <laughs> and all sorts of things. <laughs> this is a good segue into something we were talking about earlier around people often, when they think of puppetry, mm. think about silly voices. So let's break down some of these myths about puppetry. Oh, yep. Now now you're speaking my language. So, yes, puppetry is an amazing ancient discipline that's been practiced all over the world for all ages of people in so many different contexts from religious ritual to giant spectacular public festivals. It's called upon to do all sorts of amazing things in contemporary American society, there's a lot of stereotypes about puppetry working in a pretty narrow band of commercial entertainment for children, or in some cases, you know, publicly funded entertainment for children, but that still has really large products. And it's funny because for me, I got into puppetry. I was studying theater when I was in high school and learning lots of different performance styles, but I apprenticed to a company or to several artists who were developing new works at the National Puppetry Conference, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. And in almost all of the cases, the work I was doing was nonverbal. One of the most powerful things about puppetry, which we sometimes define as the art of bringing inanimate objects to life to tell a story, is that it is a language. It's a language that's rooted in the symbolic meaning of objects. It's rooted in the language of gesture and emotion. And puppeteers also train to use so many different artistic languages and skills from engineering to artistic visual design to 
all of the skills of voice performance. And then, of course, many puppeteers are also amazing producers and entrepreneurs who are finding ways to use their work and create characters and stories across all kinds of platforms, both in live theatrical settings and in digital media. And we're even seeing in the work that the Public VR Lab, a Mm. project of Brooklyn Interactive Group, the work that we're doing in the virtual reality, augmented reality space, we're seeing some live theater, immersive theater with VR, with VR headsets on and puppetry. Oh, yeah. And this whole idea of like digital characters and the language of animating worlds, that is all rooted in really amazing ancient performance traditions. And it's it's so exciting for us to see how people are bringing new skills and new technologies into the field because puppetry is powerful. The act of creating worlds and bringing characters to life really sparks our imaginations. And it lets us, for me, I think the thing that's most impactful about puppetry is when it helps me think in a different way. And it challenges my assumptions about what's possible. And there's lots and lots of ways to do that. And that's really, I mean, I think one of the main benefits of art is that We can use art as a medium, using symbols, using metaphors, maybe not even talking directly about the subject. Mm. That's difficult subject matter for people to have conversations about, but you can use symbols and metaphors and puppets Mm -hmm. because they're not us, but they can still tell stories that maybe we aren't able to talk about or taboo. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we say that puppets can say things that, you know, human characters or human beings can. And when you have an actor simultaneously being themselves and also bringing an object to life, it creates a dialogue around a topic where people might feel stuck in how they embody that topic or how that topic attaches to their own identity. Well, what about giving yourself permission to step outside that identity? And especially in a way where it's really not confined by anything in your human identity. For example, we just presented a show at Puppet Showplace last week with Brookline resident Susan Lynn, who is an extraordinary ventriloquist and activist. She founded the Campaign for a Commercial Free Childhood. She's a psychologist and did all this great work. And one of the things she wanted to talk about was to find a way to engage audiences in conversations about death. And that's such a comfortable, like really personal Difficult topic to bring up, but Susan has a character, Audrey Duck, who she has established character rapport with on stages for quite a long time. And she's brought Audrey to adult audiences recently at conferences and other academic settings where she's talked. She was like, look, we need to have a conversation about this. There's a very funny part at the beginning where Susan's trying to, quote unquote, prepare Audrey for what might be an upsetting conversation. And Audrey's like, I don't want to do this in front of this big audience. And Susan says, well, Audrey, I don't ever talk to you without an audience. (laughs) Just a reminder, folks, puppeteers are professional performers. We we know the boundaries of our imaginary worlds as well. (laughs) So I was thinking about one of the first times I ever saw puppets. Mm -hmm. I'm from a town in rural Maine, 400 people, but a bunch of people moved up from New York City in the 60s. Mm. And so we actually have some of the really interesting artists who have been there for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years now. And some of them were folks who were involved with Bread and Puppet. And, puppet yeah. and so I remember just as a kid, I was probably seven or eight years old. So this is like late 70s, early 80s. And they had all these giant paper mache puppets mm. that were 
parading down the street for I think the spring or summer equinox, mm-hmm. and so it was this. Here we are in an agricultural community and using symbols mm. that folks that had grown up in an agricultural environment knew through like symbols and metaphors of the Grange, or even just through agriculture mixed with this artsy progressive mm. contingent from Vermont and from New York City. Yeah. And it was a really interesting mix. And you have some bread and puppet folks in your background as I, well. I do. So sometimes people show like a big divide in contemporary American puppetry in terms of the traditions and lineages that are practiced. So one would be to Peter Schumann, who has been the director of Bread and Puppet Theater for over 50 years. And the other is the works originating from and inspired by Jim Henson with the Muppets. So I have both in my background. My grandfather was an early director of Sesame Street, and I trained with a lot of Muppeteers early on in my career and obviously grew up very influenced by Sesame Street. But I also had my most direct teachers, including one who was bread and puppet alumni. And, you know, that also includes Newton, former Newton resident Julie Taymor. It includes some members of Underground Railway Theater in Cambridge. It includes Sarah Peaty of the Puppeteers Cooperative, who's downtown housed in Emanuel Church. So again, you could see where the impact is very strong. But Peter's origins, he is a German-American citizen, and he his tradition really came out of like folk dance tradition and what was a practice called Totentanz or the death dance. And so this idea of communicating through physical wow. ritual around important mysteries of life, right? And the symbolic representation with these giant paper mache puppets were an extension of that as he and the company members of Bread and Puppet were also engaging in protest actions around the Vietnam War and other violence that was so prevalent and still is so prevalent in contemporary society. And what is really beautiful about Bread and Puppet Theater and and its many spinoff practitioners Mm -hmm. and descendants who have gone through the company is there's an awareness that puppetry is the performance, like what people might come to see as audience, but it's also the practice of puppetry and the way that a community might participate in a show. It might help to sustain the lives of the artists who are in that show. It might provide inspiration for the show, like you were mentioning in in the rural communities of Maine. And hence that title, Bread and Puppet, like everybody shares bread after the show and the baking of bread is part of the ritual practice of that performance. So it's very powerful. When I started at Puppet Showplace, I was learning the ropes of the field, especially around the presentation of touring puppeteers, which is what we present. There is a Boston area guild of puppetry, and puppeteers really still work in this apprentice, journeyman, master kind of practice. While we're drawing from a lot of contemporary theater disciplines and a lot of people have an academic background in theater or performance or design, many of us really learn the art 
from each other mm-hmm. and certainly learn the professional tips and advice and that sort of thing. And there's a wonderful culture among puppeteers of of sharing, of nurturing and cultivating each other, which really speaks to me. I like to work collaboratively within the arts. I find that I find inspiration from my collaborators and from the people in my community. So that culture is something that we at Puppet Showplace really try to support. We try to tend to that ecosystem very carefully. We absolutely can relate to that. I think community media is very similar. Mm. You know, anyone can walk into Brooklyn Interactive Group and become a media artist and a media practitioner, and and we share a lot of our tools and resources and, and creativity with each other, giving each other feedback. Tell me a little bit about why puppetry. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but tell me what's unique about the medium and also how it's interdisciplinary. Yeah. So people so, can understand that who may not have had exposure to Yeah. Puppetry. So we, I love that question, why puppetry, right? So I think people, again, sometimes think of puppetry for a few of the purposes that it's really good at. Like it's, it is really good at speaking symbolically and simultaneously being visual and verbal. It is used a lot along with other tools of animation in communicating commercial messages and things like that. I think a lot of people recognize how powerful puppetry can be in communicating with children and inviting play and imagination. And some of that is because puppetry is an inherently participatory art form. Unless the audience is drawn into the world that the puppeteer is creating, unless they are willing to suspend their disbelief, it doesn't work. The puppet's just not alive. We puppeteers can use all of our tools of movement and animation and design, but unless the audience says, yes, we're going to play along, it just doesn't work. So in that sense, what I think is really powerful about puppetry and whenever I have a why puppets question, I think about what is the journey that we're trying to invite the audience to take with us? What are we asking? What is valuable for them to play along? And with that, I think puppetry is also really great, as we were saying, at accessing parts of our expression and creativity that might otherwise be a little hard to access if we go right at them and we say, okay, we're going to pay a lot of attention to you right now. Entertain us, perform, show us your, you know, your dance talent or your singing talent. But if you're able to say, I want to work with my the people I'm sharing this performance with to create an imaginary world. And then into that world, we want to care for a character together. That is a very powerful gesture for a community to practice. I think the other thing that does tend to surprise me about how like a myth about puppetry or how sometimes there are stereotypes about what puppetry is People often use puppetry as a metaphor for manipulation. And we do use this word manipulation to sometimes because we're often using our hands to to move and create motion in an object or a designed character. But for puppeteers, like when politicians use this term like, oh, someone is the puppet of someone else as though they're being exploited and manipulated, that makes no sense to us whatsoever. Because for us... The relationship between a puppeteer and a puppet character is one of intense care and 
not only between those individuals, but inviting a whole community to also care for the life of this character. So that's something, if nothing else, if you take nothing else away from this today, (laughs) audience, whenever you hear these puppet metaphors in politics, just be like, "Mm, that person clearly doesn't know much about puppetry. (laughs) Vladimir Putin does not know much about puppetry. (laughs) He doesn't. He knows something else. Yes. So... Talk a little bit about Puppet Show Place Theater. So, you know, in one of the articles I read about you, you described uh, it as a walking into a joy factory. Mm-hmm. So describe what you meant by that. And then you also said something about it being New England's home. So I'm curious about whether there are other locations or mm-hmm. you're unique and in what way. Puppet Show Place is a presenting theater. So we have a small kind of core administrative staff. We have two resident artists, Sarah Nolan, who's our main resident puppeteer, and then Honey good enough who's our resident teaching artist and then we work with about 30 different companies every year who are touring puppeteers based in new england the united states and beyond so we try to be responsive in developing programming that meets the needs of a really wide variety of puppeteers but where our work is also anchored in a professional practice of puppetry that we also share with the community, especially through what we call our main stage shows series. That familial feeling around the puppetry community really originates with the founders of Puppet Show Place. The theater was founded in 1974 by a woman named Mary Churchill, who was a educator and a and a puppeteer. Her puppetry was called the Cranberry Puppets. And mm. Mary used to ride the Green Line because she taught both in Boston and in Newton. And she would come through Brookline Village. And the sort of legend about it is one day as she was passing by, she saw the story front right there in Brookline Village and said that is the perfect place for the puppet theater and whether that it unfolded exactly like that or involved a little bit more like real estate transactions and <laughs> analytical decision making uh, we, we don't need story. to yeah it's a good story <laughs> What's the benefit of creating art in Brookline? Mm. Why why Brookline? So that's a great question. And again, going back to that kind of origin story with Mary, you know, you think back to Boston in the 70s and... It was a time of some serious social strife. Mary made a very intentional decision to locate the theater at the intersection of the urban and suburban communities. And that's something that we today take very seriously at Puppet Show Place because I think being right at the borderline with Boston, there are still so many challenges that we have as a community about, you know, addressing segregation, addressing disparities of wealth, creating access to the public goods and cultural institutions and natural resources yeah, that are part of our world. And then also, of course, just making cultural assets accessible to everyone in the community. That includes, you know, barriers that might be created by economics, by racial or injustices, by the history of segregation, and and by barriers to accessibility for people with disabilities. So I think we're really inspired by that founding vision. We know that, you know, we, along with the rest of Boston, have a lot of work still to do. And we're excited to bring the tools of imagination and creativity to that work. How do you engage people in play? Mm. when they may not feel totally freed up to do that, even when they come to your performance? What are some of the techniques that you use? Oh, that's a really great question. I would say that especially for teens and young college students who we've worked with, 
they're also really open to feedback in a way that I think people my age were sometimes very like, I just need to curate my perfectionism. And I think, yeah, people are, I'm excited to be challenged by young people at a variety of ages to question my own assumptions. In terms of the tools, we see puppetry again as a language, an expressive language. We see it as a means of empowerment to to make tangible mm -hmm. a story that might be imminent in a community, but it's hard to put it in front of people. Like it's so the that, elephant in the room. Exactly, exactly. You can talk about, yeah, yeah, so through puppetry, you can actually just make choices about that elephant. Is it pink? Is it gray? Is it really mean? Is it lost in its political identity? Is it sad that it is the mascot of the Republican Party? You know, you can right. just put it outside of yourself and make those creative decisions. And I think when I do a lot of teaching as well, and sometimes it's just these really fast whirlwind workshops where I go into a classroom and I'm trying to go through like, here's a whole lot of different puppetry styles that you can sample from buffet style. But what I often end up doing as the final exercise is that is just handing the students newspaper and masking tape and asking them to work together to make a one-minute performance, sometimes an adaptation of a fairy tale, and sometimes it's something that's inspired by a headline that's in that story. And because in that the what we've done together, they have the tools of play and expression, they're able to find their way with their hands. It's that the good side of manipulation. It's your tangible intelligence and your your physical intelligence that already knows the answer to that story. So mm. I think we're helping to support people's intuition about what's true and what needs to be said at a certain period of time. Very important work to be doing right mm -hmm. now in terms of creating community dialogue and enabling people to participate, but also inviting them to the table and yeah. them to have a voice. And I think also giving them the two other like really specific and kind of fun significant tools that I try to give people in an introductory class. One is the language of breath and gesture and recognizing the universality of those things that when everybody knows how to modulate breath into a laugh and a cry or a gasp and a sigh of relief. And so when you f can simplify and abstract a story mm -hmm. into those key elements of a character's experience, it helps to kind of quiet the noise and the like narcissistic implications around, oh, am I doing the story in the best way? Right. And just like, nope, just tell the truth of the, yeah. the story simply as it's here. The other thing we do sometimes teach, which is very playful and silly, is the language of gibberish. <laughs> so gibberish is kind of like the raw sound extension of these things. So I might have my hands have an argument about, you know, one wanting pizza and the other wanting ice cream. And it had some crazy sound like and you know going going from there we're we're able to yeah tell us a little bit about collaborations that you've had with other artists or with schools and organizations in the community brookline 
In Brookline itself, we've worked a lot with some of the municipal agencies, certainly to deliver programming in the schools, to invite students to come to the theater. We also have done a lot of collaborations to do out-of-school time programming. So this includes vacation week camps that we've sometimes done with Brookline Adult and Community Education Smart Vacations programs, and also Brookline Recreation, with whom we initially launched our summer camp programs. And I think out of appreciation for that, we are always looking for ways that we can give back. And I love this expression, to grow where we're planted here in Brookline. And so we're always interested in looking at new collaborations. We have some that, you know, we've been working to establish relationships with different housing developments in Brookline. We worked to kind of convene businesses into the Brookline Village Business Association. And we've also just tried to host events that aren't necessarily puppetry events, but Mm -hmm. that make space for community conversation that might inform our artistic practice because we we realize that you know if if you're an artist and you're kind of burying your head in the sand about different you know other concerns or stresses or political issues that are going on in your community you could do better and we we really try to invite our artists to be as engaged as they can sort of pick topics that Mm -hmm. are more engaged yeah level that's been something so when I started at puppet show place just under 10 years ago, I really saw a need for us to support new full-length puppetry productions by local artists. There were this amazing cadre of older generation puppeteers, but a lot of them were nearing retirement. I mean, puppetry is a very physically demanding practice, and at some point, puppeteers often need to make a decision to preserve their health, and, you know, at some point, they can't schlep, you know, across state lines every day anymore. And recently, within the incubator program, we've really tried to support artists who want to engage audiences in important conversations that align with our values that cultivate social emotional skills in young audiences and that address topics that are hard for families to talk about. In our most recent round of incubator programs, we supported two shows. One is Go Home Tiny Monster by the Gotta Bees. And this was a show that was inspired by an experience of homelessness and housing insecurity, but where the artists had experienced a community sort of rallying to help rebuild a home that was lost in storm or in many cases in Boston, a disaster. This was debuted in the midst of so many people being displaced in Lawrence and Lowell due to the gas explosions there. And of course, many other instances of dislocation and housing insecurity all over the world. We also supported a show by our resident artist called Judy Saves the Day, although the quiet title is Judy Punches Back. There's a, a I saw that in your yeah, website, there's a traditional hand puppet show that long time ago originated in Italy, but is most associated with its practiced in Victorian England called Punch and Judy. And now it has a reputation for being a little bit culturally out of touch because Mr. Punch is kind of a anarchic character and inflicts violence on other characters in the mm-hmm. show. So reclaiming Punch and Judy with a oh, feminist voice is something that really appealed to our resident artist, Sarah Nolan. And she really wanted to also find a way to make feminism funny. She knew that comedy was a really powerful tool. And so she created a really brilliant show that taps into some fascinating contemporary conversations about feminism, but in a way that is very accessible for four, five, six, seven-year-olds. Puppet Showplace has grown a lot in our capacity to do that. And we're, again, so grateful to all the people who've helped us get there over the past 10 
years than the decades before then. Right now, we're trying to push that model even further. So we've been working with the kids social justice group, We the People, who were so excited about using puppetry, particularly one of their co-founders, Tanya Nixon-Silberg, who had amazing skills as a teacher and craft artist and parent and social justice educator, but didn't necessarily have a puppetry background that would allow her to realize a full-length production. So we worked to create an ensemble that includes Sarah, our resident artist, and me as a consulting director, and a children's book author, Santo Nagara, who is based in San Francisco. So we decided to adapt his book, My Night in the Planetarium, which is about growing up in Indonesia under a military dictatorship when his dad was a dissident artist. So we're looking at things like teaching colonialism to five-year-olds and how we engage kids in an understanding of how art can impact social change. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, the Puppet Show Place here is doing such amazing work. Oh, thanks. I mean, the last nine or almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. When's your 10-year anniversary? In January. In January. Well, congratulations. (laughs) That's 10 years. And you really started when you were, if you don't mind me saying, your age. You were 26 years old. 26, yeah. You're really a producer as well as the artistic director because you're having to put things together and you're having to build coalitions and you're having to work with different kinds of people and work with timelines. Yeah, and I was inspired coming into this job. Like, it took me a little while in my career to be like, oh, I do want to be a creative producer, this kind of artistic director role. And I had to learn through a variety of apprenticeships and other entry-level jobs and some fringe work. I actually used to work a lot in Boston's fringe opera scene, which was where I learned a lot about producing challenging theatrical work in the city. Beyond that, I would say I've learned so much in my time participating in Greater Boston's creative community. A new term that I learned over that time was the term of cultural organizer. And that has been really enlightening to me because I think there are so many really socially engaged organizations in Boston who fulfill that mission in many different ways. I have background in social theory, right, and American history. I went to Harvard. I wrote a thesis about the Americans with Disabilities Act, and I love thinking about how ideas and the symbols that we create and cultural practice can have a really big reverberating effect Absolutely. on many matters of importance. Right now, one of the problems that we're trying to solve in our artistic practice is how do we make virtual reality accessible mm. for yeah. everyone, not only in the barriers to have access to those tools for both grading or even demoing virtual reality, but also from the perspective of if you are deaf or, or part of the mm-hmm. deaf or hard of hearing community, how do you hear audio inside of how can we translate that because the medium itself makes it difficult to read Mm. text on screen. Mm. So thinking about having someone signing inside of virtual reality, for example, or thinking about different ways that we can still use the really cool new mediums technologically, but also make them accessible to all. Or how do we set it up so that if somebody's sitting in a wheelchair or has to sit down versus standing up, how do we adjust for that on the fly when most virtual reality is created for Mm -hmm. a particular eye level? or like an average height. So I I think that's something probably in your practice you're having to think about both with your background at Harvard, but also just in thinking about how to make things accessible. Do you have any things that you want to share that you feel like have been part of that work for you? So two things. One is just from the research I did as an undergrad, I learned so much from 
learning about the history of the disability rights movement and the really radical idea that they deployed as an organizing creed and a philosophy that disability is a social construction. And, you know, it goes against so many things that we're taught. We're taught that disability is about medical diagnosis or that it has some even longer before it has some weird symbolic meaning about bait and your luck or like all of those kind of attributes. And, you know, there are just so many examples that show that disability, humanity is a variety of body types, experience, perspectives, and we create institutions that advantage some over the others. And as artists, we have the skills to create anything. And we also have the skills to build empathy and to bring forth stories that might not be being told. So I have been really inspired by that just as a foundational aspect of my practice, Mm -hmm. like really trying to You know, even though things might be busy or we have deadlines or something feels like it needs to be done a certain way because it's always been done that way, that really we're here as artists because anything is possible. And giving yourself the permission to not get stuck in old ways of doing things is really important. At the same time, we recently went through Puppet Show Places, what's called an UP-designated organization. For UP stands for Universal Participation. And it's a program of the Mass Cultural Council that trains organizations in many practices related to accessibility. And it's intersectional accessibility, but it's rooted in access for people with all abilities. And one of the things that they did is bring in the Institute for Human-Centered Design, which Mm -hmm. uses a practice called user experts. So it invites people with a variety of functional impairments to participate in your programming and then just talk to you about what their experience was. And I think that felt so empowering to me to say, just bring the people in the room who you're trying to care about. It's not about how do we tweak things at the margins or how do we deal with new waves of compliance? It's like, let's just ask people. people. (laughs) Well, it goes back to that cultural organizing. You know, I think in my early days, I was a community organizer. And what I learned from sort of the movements that came before Mm -hmm. us, you know, the labor movement in particular, is you don't tell people what is right for their community. You go in and you ask Mm -hmm. a lot of questions and you try to figure out what it is that they're working on as a community or what they're struggling with as a community. And you help facilitate access to the resources and to the power building tools that are available. But you ask them, you ask them Mm -hmm. questions and you find out what they want to work on. Yeah. And I think the same is true with, you know, accommodations Mm -hmm. and thinking about how we can create art that's really inclusive and create public access to tools that are really Mm -hmm. inclusive as well. So. There is, again, my entry. My puppets at Night. Yeah, but which we call Puppets <laughs> at Night. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. So Puppets at Night has existed a, a, as a series for us for a long time. And, you know, just functionally pretty much every month we have a late night show that is <laughs> late night. It's 8, 8 p.m. or so <laughs> that is intended for adult audiences or is sort of like PG-13 rated. So it, it in alternating months, that's our Puppets Showplace Slam, which is a cabaret style evening of short-form puppet theater for adults. It can range from the profound to the profane and everything in between. But in those other times, you know, the world of contemporary puppetry, adult puppetry, is is very vast. And thinking about what were the shows that were right for Puppet Showplace, we really care about making space for 
new and experimental work. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's a component of what we're interested in. But then we also found that work where we can make a deep partnership and make a deep connection to a community organization is often really, really successful. So one of the first times that we did this was for a production called Bend by Kimi Maeda. It also used a lot of projection art and oh, um, cool. and sand painting and some really interesting puppetry. Now, Kimi's father had experienced being incarcerated in an internment camp mm. during World War II, and while he was there, he was they were visited by a prominent Japanese landscape architect whose work inspired some of the design that Kimi used in the piece. But as she was creating it, her father was also experiencing dementia and actually mm. passed away while the show was on tour in New England mm. or just before. And that was a project that we worked on with the Japanese American Citizens League. And we realized, you know, that this was a show that all of a sudden sold out on a, you know, random weekday night because wow. there was such a desire to really pay attention to the details of this experience and yeah. this this complex story that really we would we would be very challenged to bring forth in another setting and yeah. then in in puppet show places very intimate setting and space we were able to you know listen to Kimi listen to people who knew her father mm -hmm. listen to the the uh, ambassador <laughs> who was here in Boston and other dignitaries who also visited and were part of the event so with that really successful model last year especially at our 45th anniversary season we had lots of really great collaborative projects. We presented Hijinx Theatre from Wales, who's a company who features artists with and without disabilities, specifically learning disabilities as, as the term is they use. And so we worked with AANE, the Asperger Autism awesome. Network of New England, and, and did a lot of collaborative programming. We also brought the company on a visit to Gateway Arts, who actually functions in a very similar way here in Brookline. And it, it was, you know, wonderful at generating those partnerships. We presented another show called Babel that by Sandglass Theater that we also worked with the International Institute of New England to bring out conversations about refugee communities and contemporary, the plight of contemporary refugees wow, in the great. world. So yeah, it, I think that model continues to really inspire us. And yeah, we look forward to future complex conversations. Absolutely. And, and it sounds like we ought to collaborate on some of those. Yeah. We're working on immigration <laughs> storytelling projects yes, with virtual I reality. Yes, I love seeing all the the work that you're that you're bringing forth again to honor the stories of people right here in Brookline. So I think that's important in Boston. I think sometimes or in greater Boston, we have this a little bit of anxiety about like brand and culture where it's like we, we make culture very elite and mm. surrounded by, you know, th things that, that might be significant at cultivating excellence. But I think sometimes uses community art or community mm -hmm. engagement as a, a status to marker. Right. And I am very uninterested in Me that. Too. Me too. I, you know, I... Corporations I really, use that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really what I think organizations like, like yours and ours, just it's just what we do. So 
Roxy, tell me a little bit about how someone can get started with puppeteering. Maybe we have some listeners who are thinking, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I hope we are. Well, you should get in touch with us at Puppet Showplace. We, especially for adults, we have a whole adult class series that uh, continues all throughout the year. Some intro classes, some master classes and specialty topics. But then we also try to make our space available for people who have works in progress that they want to explore more. Actually, tonight we have a really great event called the Hatchery, which is a drop-in project night at oh, Puppet cool. Showplace. And then there's some other, some puppeteers who really were into practicing Muppet-style monitor puppetry. They also have a monthly event called Jim Jam Monitor Night. And we just do that as a free drop-in event. So we know that people need to try things out before they find what their their unique puppet voice is. Any, any voiceover classes? I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking yeah. there's a class in I my think, future. Yeah, I think we might need to have, have that. <laughs> uh, we did have a class that was called Fundamentals of silly voices. So we'll have to bring that back, Excellent. especially for you, Kathy. Excellent. Uh, I'll be there. Yeah. And then for for all ages, we are available to kind of meet people where they are. It's one of the nice things about us being a really small organization. So for audiences of all ages, we, for <laughs> for potential puppeteers of all ages, we, there's, there's really a lot that we can offer. And one of the benefits of being a small organization is that we can keep generating new partnerships. There's not a lot of red tape. So anyone can reach out to me. My email is artistic at puppetshowplace.org. And if you have ideas for bringing one of our artists to a school or community group or bringing, you know, a group with a special interest on site to meet with us and explore a topic through puppetry, we can definitely make that happen. And how can folks get tickets to your performances? Oh, great. So if you want to know about anything coming up at Puppet Showplace, just visit www.puppetshowplace.org. And our schedule of performances are there. You can also drop in and visit us in Brookline Village. We're at 32 Station Street, right across from the Brookline Village Tea Stop. Or give us a call at 617-731-6400. And repeat that URL just one more time so people can find you on the web www.puppetshowplace.org. I just want to thank you so much, Roxy, for coming in and talking to us here today at BIG and for really being on our inaugural arts podcast in Brookline. I am very honored, Kathy, to be here. So thank you so much for inviting me, and I look forward to future collaborations with you and the other members of our community. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Anne's laughing out there. (laughs) Are you doing the little uh, special effects? No, that's all me. This podcast pilot was developed by Brookline's Community Media Arts Center, Brookline Interactive Group, with funding from the Brookline Commission for the Arts. Support Creative Brookline as a monthly patron on Patreon or donate a one-time gift on our website, brooklineinteractive.org donate. This episode of Creative Brookline was hosted by Big Executive Director Kathy Bisbee and featured Roxana Myram, Artistic Director of Puppet Showplace Theater. Sound engineering by Ann Tice, assisted by Clara Kaufman. Audio editing by Clara Kaufman. Music by Aletta Steinberg. Create a Brookline podcast is a big production. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was a really good show.